Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris From Nice Guy Productions' quarantined world headquarters overlooking the evacuated San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Shall we consider the monster for a moment? We've given a lot of well-deserved attention to the creators of the creatures, the monster makers that haunt our cinematic nightmares. They are the rock stars of horror. Rick Baker, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger from KNB, the Kyoto Brothers, Tom Savini, Billy Corso, so many other brilliant and talented artists who've taken the art of monster maker far beyond anything realized by their forebears, Lon Chaney, Jack Pierce, and Dick Smith blazed trails in creature creation that leave an indelible mark to this day. They make the monsters, but what of the actors who portray them? Lon Chaney was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces and not only played the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the Phantom of the Opera, but designed and applied his own extensive makeups. His son, Lon Chaney Jr., was the Wolfman and the Mummy, even Frankenstein's monster, who was first and inimitably portrayed by the great Boris Karloff. Christopher Lee brought new life to both Dracula and Frankenstein in the Hammer films in the UK. Robert Englund's Freddy Krueger is the only true Freddy Krueger, despite attempts to modernize him. The men and their makeups made for unforgettable moments. But as a good horror movie must first be a good drama, a good monster is a complex combination of brilliant makeup and a fine actor. The monsters that last came to life because Karloff and the Cheneys, Lee, England, and all of the best of the bunch were terrific performers, really talented, deep actors who took their roles seriously and played them like Shakespeare. We still have our performers who specialize in monster performances, Kane Hodder, Derek Mears, and a handful of other talented actors who bring our fears to life. But none more than our guest, who has played everything from aliens to moonheads to fishmen and creatures of all stripes, a man who is equally galvanizing under the makeup as well. We will get to meet the modern man of a thousand faces, Doug Jones, after this. Fright Rags has been giving you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering hundreds of products for fan-favorite films. 
This week, Joe Bob Briggs is back with a new season of The Last Drive-In, and Fright Rags is celebrating with a new t-shirt, classic reprints, two new hats, as well as their very first action figure. That's right, now you can get Joe Bob Briggs as a collectible 3.75-inch figure with four points of articulation foo, one set of drive-in speakers, one beer bottle, and beer foo grip. Who wouldn't want that? They are $20 each and limited to $1,000, available exclusively at fright-rags.com. Postmortem listeners get 10% off when they use the code POSTMORTEM10. Joe Bob Briggs on your shelf. Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts like Postmortem. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the original run of Fangoria magazine. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic and Puppet Master The Littlest Reich are streaming on Shudder now. And by the way, so is Nightmare Cinema. Celebrate the master of horror and the mistress of the dark this month with brand new apparel from your friends at Cavity Colors. Officially licensed, Elvira sweatpants are perfect for in-home quarantine lounging and horrifying new shirts honoring 40 years of John Carpenter's The Fog. The first movie I ever worked on, by the way. Cavity Colors is jam-packed full of officially licensed products for some of your favorite horror movies, including George A. Romero's Day of the Dead, Poltergeist, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Chopping Mall, as well as more recent favorites like Haunt and The Cabin in the Woods. Use the promo code MORTEM for 15% off your order at CavityColors.com and you'll stay spooky forever. I'm so glad to finally get this off the ground. We've been trying to make it happen for a while. Um, you are one of my favorite performers, and the fact that we both had uh, beginning points in our careers uh, centered around one particular movie that seems to have lasted along with us um, yeah. is, is a great treat to finally make it happen. Oh, well, the, the treat is then the honor is all mine. And thank you for that introduction, which I cannot live up to. But <laughs> oh, you already have, my friend. <clears throat> Very kind of you. So how does a kid from Indiana hmm. find his way into the hearts of horror fans everywhere to to become the premier creature performer in in the business these days? Oh, well, very kind of you to call me that, but uh, but as far as as the kid from Indiana and his dreams, uh, monsters wasn't a part of it. Honestly, back back in the day, I uh, I grew up on on funny things, sitcoms and musicals and feel goods. Uh, yeah. So so when I came out to Hollywoodland in 1985, uh, I was I was pursuing that goofy sidekick on a sitcom kind of a role, tall, skinny, goofy guy. You know. I thought if I could come in, do armpit farts and ask for a cup of sugar from my neighbor, that would be my career, right? So the comedy was the first thing. I mean, Night yeah. Angel is one of the first things you did, and it is oh. that 
comedic. You you dance up a storm in that one too. Oh, God bless you for even knowing about Night Angel Heavens. Uh, <laughs> Come on, um, who are we? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and in that movie, right, I was indeed the tall, skinny, goofy sidekick to the handsome guy, and uh, and uh, got to you know curly hair, baseball cap, the whole nine yards for the eighties. <laughs> and uh, so so, but I. I I did not know that what I walked into Hollywood with was going to be so uh, lusted after by the creature effects makeup artists and the uh, and the, the horror makers. Um, a tall, I'm six three and a half, weigh 140 pounds, have since high school, and uh, with a mime background that I got from Ball State University. I was in a mime troupe there called Mime Over Matter. Get it? Oh, there um, you go. Very clever. Yeah, very yeah, yeah. A little play on words there, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, with with that kind of a background, and then I also was the mascot at my high at my uh, university at Ball State. I was Charlie Cardinal for a couple of years. Uh, so you were in a bird suit. Big bird suit, right? So I, I had no <laughs> I, I had no idea that I had been training for the career that I ended up having. I because I didn't know that that was a career option. Honestly, I uh, I did. I had seen. Uh, the classic horror films, you know, the black and white Universal monsters uh, back in the day on on reruns on TV. Uh, the Creature from the Black Lagoon was one of my first. My first was actually The Mummy with Boris Karloff, ah. and uh, and th- those left you know such uh, such deep uh, feelings and such deep memories for me. Uh, but I but I never thought, uh, oh, there's an actor that would have done that. You know, to me they were monsters, and and I was afraid of them, <laughs> and rightfully right, so. Right. Uh, so, so it was honestly it, because I have I had mime contortionist and uh, and those ma- college mascot things on my resume and my special skills section. My first agent, my first commercial agent, sent me out on everything that was that was for physical tomfoolery, pratfalls if it required clowning or miming in any way. And often those roles would come with some kind of a makeup or costume that would that would. Uh, be other than human or, or, or before we get too deep into that, how you were a contortionist. Where do you utilize those skills? (laughs) I know I did not travel with the circus. Uh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I was actually, my contorting is basically I'm I'm a a forward roller with my being able to put my legs behind my head and so uh, that's a one, but, but that's my one party trick. So that's where I did it. I did it in front of groups of friends. Like, oh, guess what I can do? Fit it. Yeah. <laughs> so I fit in was, a box really well. <laughs> and I fit in a box really well. Yeah, yeah. I did a I did a commercial for Lee Jeans way back in the day, uh, where I put it. They fit me into a really tiny plexiglass uh, uh, box while wearing this comfortable stretchy jean that they had just come out with. So yeah, so. Uh, I guess that's where you utilize it. I don't know, but but because that contortionist was on my resume, um, it came into play so much. I, I mean, t- TV commercials especially, being able to do a sight gag where you can do something that's that physically extreme, it's like ah, and uh, so. But it also brings a laugh, and so it, it would often be a punchline in a commercial, or uh, I would do cameos on sitcoms, uh, little things like that all the time. So my early well, days, thank thank goodness, the contortionist thing was there. Well, it also shows that you you can't be claustrophobic, which has served you well because of all these makeups. I know that when I did Michael Jackson's Thriller, when I was one of the zombies going through the face casting process and the three hours of makeup, 
I am claustrophobic and it was torture for me. You have to be the mellowest guy in the world to do all of these yeah. things. Done. Right, right. Well, you know, you, you can't turn claustrophobia on or off. I don't think it's no. just, it's either there. Or it isn't. It, it's there or it's not. Yeah. yeah. And Valium so, or otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, from yeah, thankfully, that's just never been been a problem for me. Um, I, one time, one time, I was getting. I think I was getting a life cast done. I was getting under the alginate and the plaster, uh, head and shoulders, for my role as the lead spy Morlock in. Um, in the remake the of the Time Machine, right, with Guy Pierce, wow. and um, and and for for one split second, I had a ah, a freak out moment. But it just it always helps to have somebody there to just grab my hand. We'll be fine. That's in, in my thirty four year. Yeah. yeah, they're yeah. also good psychotherapists as well. Yes. No, no cre creature effects makeup people have to be have a great bedside manner that can, because they have to be a nursing home uh, assistant as well as a makeup artist. <laughs> well, one of your first uh, national works that brought attention to you was indeed under a mask. You were Mac tonight. You were the moon head in the McDonald's commercials, right? Right. There's a throwback. Yes, indeed. That was the, uh, the late eighties. Uh, I think 1987 is when they went, was when the, the commercials went national and, and lasted for about a three. I, I did my last commercial for them in, uh, in 1990. We did a, 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 a three year run of 27 commercials. Bought my first house with that. Thank heaven. Thanks for McDonald's. <laughs> That's one of the few reasons to say thanks to McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> other than that, yeah, my, my cholesterol doesn't thank them. But <laughs> <laughs> well, there there was Night Angel. There were a lot of little independent movies and things. But um, kind of your first studio feature was it happened later. I wrote it eight eight years before it was produced, but in Hocus Pocus, you made quite a splash as Bad Billy Butcherson. So well, Yes, yes. Uh, you know, the, the one studio film I was involved with just before that was Batman Returns, but I, in a very small role. I was right. in about six scenes of that. And it was because Batman Returns was on my resume that it helped me get the audition for Hocus Pocus. So I, I do oh. I do clump those together. Uh, uh, and and it, uh, it was, uh, I got a uh, casting director Greg Smith. He's a, he was often a dance casting director. Uh, uh -huh. My audition came through his end to Kenny Ortega, director, uh, and we did my audition for Billy Butcherson, the goofy zombie, in a dance studio in Burbank. And I'll never forget that day because I was terror. I was just the usual nerves, and uh, and Kenny Ortega, being a choreographer and a, a movement person, and so artistically expressive physically. Uh, you know, he was he was my director. I'm just like instant instant uh, kismet. Where we loved each other immediately, and and he uh, he put on he had a boombox in the room and he turned on some music and told me to get from point A to point B. You're a dead guy waking up and you're going to see this uh, this witch who who you know put you there in the grave. So uh, enjoy. I, I just kind of <laughs> had to, so I just kind of improv this scene, and uh, oh, it was it was so it, I knew I had him when the entire room at the other end of the dance studio was laughing hysterically before I even stood up all the way. So I figured, okay, I got, I think I got this one. <laughs> yeah, that was such a great performance. And tell me about the first time you saw the makeup, when the makeup was on and you became Billy Butcherson. Tell me how that felt and how, how it affected your performance. 
Right. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And, and the look of a character like that will often affect my performance. Uh, it, 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 everything weighs in. Uh, your beautiful script absolutely weighs in. It informs me where I fit into the story and, who, and how I relate to the other characters. Um, a meeting with the director with his his notes on what I should be. But that makeup, when that makeup goes on, that, that is the final button on, on the sweater that makes me my, my character. Right. So, uh, so when I, so Tony Gardner, bless Tony Gardner's heart at Alterian Studios, uh, he uh, had one of his sculptors, Chet Czar, uh, sculpt this, this bust of Billy Butcherson. Uh, and when it was applied onto me for the first time, it just, it changed my bone structure ever so slightly, but it was still, it was, it was a dead version of me, but they made <laughs> me much. But they made me much more handsome than I am in real life. It was like <laughs> that's not true, Doc. No. Well, I, I I looked at myself and I said that is a hot zombie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's really so much fun. Tony Gardner had done Psycho Four for me and and uh, Sleepwalkers right before that. Oh, and, and you two were also in that Michael Jackson thriller video together, if I remember right. That's right. All of the makeup yeah. guys were made each other up uh, yeah. for themselves. And so most yeah. of the zombies, the close-up zombies you see in Thriller are makeup, uh, yeah. makeup X guy. My wife, Cynthia, and I are both zombies in it, and, yeah. uh, and Rick and Tony and all of them, yeah. Greg Canham, really amazing. It was like a Masters of Horror, but all makeup <laughs> effects masters. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. Uh, so uh, that kind of changed the course of your career, did it not? Did you not start getting offered mostly that kind of under under makeup jobs? Uh, yes, uh, not only not only um, the, the notoriety of the film, and the notoriety of the film has grown exponentially over the years, as you, as, yeah. as you know, right? You know, yeah. We went from, from we went from a, 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 a dismal box office in 1993 to doing a 25 year anniversary celebration on the Freeform channel with millions of viewers around the world going, yes, Hocus Pocus. Okay. so much fun. It was great. So to, that's fun. the last time I think I saw you was at that. Uh, right, 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 right. Oh, so, so fun. Um, so uh, what was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, just that it led to more creature yes. jobs. Yes, yes, yes. And that that's when I realized the, the importance of relationships within Hollywood. Uh, Tony Gardner, who we've been talking about, uh, is is was the first creature effects person that really started the referral process on me. Uh, he would he would remember me and call me back in. I did I did over ten jobs with him, uh, characters for him in different things, from everything from a, a FedEx commercial to um, more movies and even like a cameo and adaptation where he put a beard and a wig on me. What, right. uh, just everything. And we, we, and uh, warriors of virtue, the kangaroo movie that, uh, for eight year old boys <laughs> that, uh, that I, I played, I played one of the kangaroos in, um, that's the damn kangaroo movie, uh, battle movie that I've ever not seen. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. So then that was back in that. Yeah. was, gosh, that was 1997 that came out. So it's all, it's all been a while. But uh, but that that was that was the uh, t Tony was 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 really key, a key player in the referrals of Doug Jones and, and getting seen by more and more uh, creature effects makeup artists and the creature effects makeup world in Hollywood land is very incestuous uh, people that work that work in as a mold maker or or a, uh, uh, or a sculptor but they they might go from one shop to the other as work dies down or or, or mounts back up again. 
So, so I'll get a referral from a shop I'd never worked for because someone there had worked at maybe Tony's shop before. So, so that, that really started throwing the net wider and wider for me personally, uh, as, as being known as the guy who tall, skinny guy who moves well and wears rubber bits (laughs) and and can act and is funny. That's something is often not really recognized in people who do excel in playing creatures. They have to be truly fine actors because they have to act beyond the layers of latex. And it's easy to forget. There are just monsters who go and rip shred people and all, but but the humanity in the creature in, in, um, in uh, shape of water, you know. What, in fact, let's let's lead up to that. Uh, tell me how your association with Guillermo del Toro began back in Mimic. Where how that started? Right, uh, 1997. Uh, I got one of those one of those referral phone calls from a creature shop. I think it was a Rick Lazzarini's shop was was doing the uh, the the bugs uh, the the giant yeah. cockroaches that took over the New York subway system in Mimic. Yeah. Uh, I got a, I got a call that they were doing pickup shots for the uh, like additional photography uh, for the movie, like three weeks before it, it hit the theaters uh, in Los Angeles. Now they filmed principal photography in Toronto. So there was a Toronto Canadian actor who was tall, skinny, who had played these bug creatures previously in the in principal photography, but to get him down to Los Angeles to, you know, uh, work permits, travel, hotel, you know, uh, so, hey, who do we know locally? So the tall, skinny Rolodex comes out and guess whose name is in there, right? <laughs> so. So I got that call, and can I co- could I come down to downtown LA that night for a night shoot? And that, that was I'm, I'm like you know out of work actor. Yes, I'm free. Uh, <laughs> so I ended up on the top of a three story brick building, looking down uh, with a rain machine hitting me in the head while I was wearing a bug mask and a very human like uh, uh, trench coaty thing that was made out of sort of bug wings. It was you know that that human bug hybrid sort of thing from that movie. Never met the director that night because everyone was down on the ground and I was getting yelled at through a megaphone. <laughs> so I did. I did my one little my one little leaning over the edge of the building and it was that was a cut and that was a wrap for the night for me. Next day, I got called back in to do a uh, a green screen shot on a sm- with a smaller skeleton crew on a, a green screen soundstage. That's when I met our director Guillermo del Toro. He, at lunchtime, he sat across the table from me, put his head his chin in his hands, and said, "So tell me everything you've been in before." <laughs> Had you seen Kronos? Did you know that film? I did not know who this man was at the time, right? Uh, I was one of those uh, uh, dumb American uh, uh, audiences who who did not, uh, I didn't I didn't know, uh, I did, had not seen a lot of, of uh, films with subtitles, right? So Kronos had, was getting critical acclaim uh, uh, that he made in Mexico with Ron Perlman, we might add. Right. And, and I did not know any of that. And so now this director is... I guess Mimic was his first American studio film. Right. Uh, so, and here he is asking me to tell him what I've been in before. So by that time, I so I, I recounted things like Warriors of Virtue and Hocus Pocus and the Mac Tonight campaign, uh, the things we've talked about. And so he was he was getting more excited talking to me. Uh, and I was getting more excited talking to him because he told me that he started as a makeup artist and a creature creator for his own projects and short films and, and things in, in television in Mexico. Oh my gosh! I love this man. Who is he? He he, and he was talking like a twelve-year-old fanboy, right? So I, I loved him. 
Well, I met him around that time. Well, I met him right after he made Kronos. Yeah. He screened it for me because he wanted uh, me to consider using Guillermo Navarro as my DP on the stand when we were about to make that. Now, there was no way I could make that happen because Guillermo had never done an American television shoot or anything like that. But but I had seen Kronos, and of course, he'd seen um, Ron Perlman in Sleepwalkers and then you know, later mm -hmm. on, we worked with Ron again a couple right. of times. But right. Um, right. so this this world becomes quite small, as you were saying. With the creature creators, yeah. it's incestuous. But people who make movies, particularly in the genre, their paths cross often. And often, so right. that's where I first met Guillermo. Then later on, of course, he named the Masters of Horror when we had those dinners. But anyway, so you were meeting with Guillermo at that time and hitting it off like crazy. Yeah, yeah, and so he he took a, a card from me after that that day on the on the set, and uh, and then five years later, <laughs> it's, it's two, yeah, in two thousand two, I got another random phone call from Steve Wang, uh, who I had worked with uh, on mm, a, a movie in Australia. It was called Tooth Fairy originally, renamed uh, Darkness Fall. Uh, no, uh, yeah, Darkness Falls, I believe. Is that it, Darkness Falls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, the, it had a, it was a Tooth Fairy themed movie, and right. Steve Steve Wang's creature that he made for me. I, I was the Tooth Fairy in the original version of the film, but had been replaced with another another character after a screening. I, who, who knows what? But it's a shame that Steve Wang's very haunting Tooth Fairy character was never seen on film. But uh -huh. but Steve and I had that that history, and he he called to say, "Hey, uh, uh, I'm over at a, a new studio called Alt uh, um, uh, Spectral Motion." Uh, headed up by Matt Michael Zaldi, we had a we're we had uh, we're having dinner right now with a director who says he knows you. So that was Guillermo del Toro, right? And uh, what had happened earlier that day? They had shown him and unveiled for him the sculpture that Jose uh, Fernandez had done of the maquette of Abe Sapien for the first Hellboy movie. Ah. That's, so my name came up in a room full of, of friendly people that have worked with me before. And uh, they all said, hey, you know who should play this is Doug Jones. Guillermo said, Doug Jones, wait, I know Doug Jones. And he pulled my card out of his wallet that I gave him five years earlier. So, And so your they, number hadn't changed. Your number hadn't changed. They called me, right? <laughs> so it was like, that was a glorious moment. And so we, we, uh, I called, they called me in the next day. I went and met with them the next day. And we, uh, I showed him my, my demo reel of what, things I'd done since we'd seen each other last. And, and uh, he's like, ah, oh. by then I'd done Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, as the, the gentleman of the Hush episode. Right. And as, as, I, as that character moved and gestured very, very gently and very fluidly, uh, Guillermo said, oh, I love those hands. Oh, that, that's what, exactly perfect for this role. So <laughs> you do so, a very good Guillermo. Oh, thank you, my friend. So, <laughs> so uh, it, no, it was so it was just fabulous. Uh, we again just we picked up right where we left off after five years, and and uh, and that Hellboy was the movie that really cemented our relationship, where uh, where we got to know each other as actor director, and 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 that that shorthand that that is so rare in our business, where where you know you really just click with someone, uh, so that. You, I, I understand him. He understands me. He knows my weaknesses and my strengths better than I do. He's really a, the most brilliant director I think I've ever worked with in my entire life. And, sure. and every other director knows that and, that, and they're fine with that. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Well, Hellboy was a, a big studio franchise type film. It was based on a popular comic book and that has, for years that has been the best way to have a hit movie has come from a, a popular comic book. But your next work together was on Pan's Labyrinth, which is kind of the opposite, very artful, very dark, very haunting and very independent. So tell me about how the experiences might've been different from, from all of the trailers and everything on one to something that was had to have been much more intimate. Right, money. That was the yeah. difference. <laughs> You'd never know it by looking at it. And you wouldn't know it by looking. And, that's, and I, I knew that going in. Uh, by that time, um, uh, Guillermo del Toro, sent, he sent me a, 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 an email saying that he was in Spain, he was prepping this uh, a, a movie he was going to do in the Spanish language called uh, Pan's Labyrinth, and uh, and had he said that uh, there's a character, the, lead, uh, the, the title character, Pan the Fawn, uh, is, can only be played by you, he said. And while you're looking at the script, I also want you to look at a little scene where there's a pale man, uh, you know, just something. And he kind of fluffed that one off, like, yeah, I want you to look at that too. So... Uh, uh, can you read the script and get back to me by 11 o'clock tonight, your time? Uh, so I knew what my day, what my day was going to be. So I read the script and by this time, by the, this was, this was 2005 that this, this email transaction was happening by this time. Um, I was known just enough that, uh, I was getting offers for a lot of, a lot of horror films that were, uh, blood splatter on the wall kind of horror films where, you Not know, your cup of tea, right? Not my cup of tea, right? Not, uh, naked teenagers running around the woods. Oh no, here comes Doug Jones to kill all of us one at a time. Not my favorite thing. Yes. So, 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 uh, uh, I had been offered two of those earlier that same week and had said, uh, and had declined both of them, uh, because they just didn't artistically sing to me. So now I'm reading the script for Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, Mick, you're a writer. You understand. Oh, when you read something that gorgeous, that delicious, that you just want to chew on it and savor it and uh, take you it to tell, bed. You can tell his heart and soul is completely immersed in that in that yes. script, in that film. Yes, yes, yes. And and knowing that he was going to be the one directing what I just read, it was like, well, this is an absolute no-brainer. I have, uh, I have. So the email I sent back to him in Spain was all, in all caps with lots of exclamation points. Of course, yes, yes, of course, I want to do it. Ah! Right. So uh, um, that was just a, a glorious, uh, and the fact that he trusted me so much with that that personal piece for him. Yeah, um, and playing two parts in it as well was two parts, and and the fawn, of course, in the Spanish language, which I didn't speak. So I tried to convince him he had the wrong guy at one point. When I realized, oh no, I don't know Spanish. I'm going to ruin your movie. But it's also <laughs> not contemporary Spanish. You had to learn a, a, a fairly archaic form of Spanish, right? A dialect, right? And uh, now. Uh, uh, because of my insecurities, uh, he told me at the time. He said, "Oh, don't worry about that." You can count to 10 for all I care and I'll dub over it later, but you are the one to play Pan. So, so that, that kind of gave me a little bit of a reprieve, like, well, okay, I guess he doesn't, my language doesn't have to be perfect because he can voice over this. And I don't love being dubbed over, mind you, <laughs> but, not, yeah. uh, but in, in, a, in a language you don't speak, it, it, it called for it. Uh, so, but I thought, you know, I, you know what? I cannot count to 10 on film. I can't do that to my co-star, Ivana Baccaro. She was an 11-year-old girl 
at the yeah. time. <laughs> you can't you can't count to ten with emotion and expect a, another actor to be to you know live in the moment with you. Yeah, it's a two way street. Yeah, absolutely. So so I and also my lip movement would have would have made lip sync impossible. Uh, so it would have looked like a dub job. So I did buckle down and I learned the Spanish language of that film. I had an English script and a Spanish script side by side. So I could, I could break down the sentence structure and realize what I was saying and what, where to put my inflections and all the whole nine yards. And then I was, I was uh, dubbed over in post-production by a Spanish actor who could hear the nuances of the language and that I couldn't. Mm, Interesting. Well, that continued with the strain and 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 obviously shape of water which is again even though it was a studio movie of sorts it was so independent and so from the heart and so guillermo nobody could have made that movie except guillermo Uh, agreed absolutely agreed and it was it was 20 2014 february i was sitting in guillermo del toro's office while we were filming crimson peak I was uh-huh. two of his. I was two of his ghost ladies in that. Right, of course. And on one of my days off, uh, he met me at lunchtime in his office to close the door and have a private little talk about this other movie he was thinking of after this was done, and that was The Shape of Water. So he didn't have a script yet. He had it all, all the storyline in his head, and he said, "I so I had a little fireside chat with Guillermo where where he had story time." I said, "Well, what's it about?" Well, and then he explained the whole storyline of, of The Shape of Water, and I was just like. <laughs> This is gorgeous, and I knew I knew sitting in his office that day. I I said this is this is going to be his next trip back to the Oscars again after Pan's Labyrinth. And did I call it, Mick? Thirteen nominations, four wins. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that experience about Oscar. Oh, gosh, I'll. Uh, well, you know, uh, Pan's Labyrinth was my first trip to the to the Oscars. I, right. I, I was uh, invited to go uh, to represent the film on the red carpet and all that as well. Um, so. So both, uh, I've been to the Oscars twice, only twice, and both times were with a Guillermo del Toro film. So that was a, a big honor for me. Um, it's, well, I mean, it, it's the it's the the Super Bowl for the entertainment industry. It's a, it's our prom, you know. Uh, and so when you're when you're with that much Hollywood royalty all around you, it's just a and, and a press line that goes on for an hour and a half. If you want to, if you stop at every every outlet along the way, it takes you an hour and a half to get in the building. Um, uh, that alone, but then, but then knowing knowing what, that so much was riding on this uh, for Guillermo. Now we've been through the Golden Globes already, where he won Best Director, and uh, and go, it had I forget it had about I forget how many nominations at the Golden Globes, maybe seven ish, yeah. um, and uh, so it was, it was so much. So it was a nervous night indeed, uh, but when the, the two moments that meant the most to me was Guillermo getting his Best Director. Uh, statuette to, to win that award and to stand there and hold that and caress it while he gave his acceptance speech was just, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, after 20 years uh, of working with that man, I, I, I had been longing for this moment. Uh, then at the end of the night, when they, when they announced best picture and we all got to run up on the stage and, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I'll never forget the snapshot moment standing behind him, seeing the back of his head as he addressed the entire Dolby theater, uh, holding another gold statuette <laughs> for best picture. Uh, it was just a, a snapshot that I'll, I'll, I will savor forever. I was so proud, so proud to be a part of that. What glorious validation, not only for that film and all of the people who made it, but for the genre too, that is normally treated with complete disrespect. 
Well, right. If it has a if it has a creature in it, then it must be in this other category, right? When you're on the red carpet, the mainstream press is obviously very superficial in so many ways. Did they have any idea who you were? Um, the uh, <laughs> well, the yeah. fish man. Yes. Uh, uh, thankfully, I had uh, had a, a, a Fox Searchlight publicist with me. So ah. yeah, does that helped a lot? And and by that time though, I I had been doing press for the movie for months before this. Right. So, uh, so much uh, Doug Jones press had been happening more than ever in my life before because of two things, actually. Uh, Star Trek Discovery season one had already aired. Right. And now, uh, and now Shape of Water uh, was, you know, getting all of its awards now, uh, attention. And then who is the fish guy was an, a question everybody wanted to know. So, right. uh, so there were had a lot of pieces had been done on me in the mainstream, uh, mag, but both print and TV and radio. I did a lot of NPR interviews and that kind of thing. So, so I remember them very, very well. We oh, paid attention. Oh, bless you. Thank you. So, so that that helped the red carpet go a bit more smoothly with uh, with the who the heck are you <laughs> thing. Well, let's let's go back to your childhood for a moment. You were the youngest of four kids. Your father was a teacher and an entrepreneur, but also a politician in Indiana politics. So tell me what life was like for a young Doug Jones that that made you want to seek out the the performing side. What did you watch? What did you love? What what inspired you? Right, right, right. Uh, <clears throat> being the youngest of four boys that were all, and all, my three older brothers, very, very handsome, very athletic. And here I was, this gangly kid who couldn't catch or toss a ball. Oh. Well, yeah. So, so, uh, and my dad was was a very a very self starter. Uh, you know, he he rose in in local politics in in uh, in Indiana, where we lived, and uh, he even even started a church in our house because he wanted to. Uh, <laughs> he just like anything he wanted, he just went out and did. Uh, my so, brother did that. Uh, he, um, for years, was the pastor of his own church. Mm -hmm. First in his home, and then at a church that existed, and they would come in and do theirs. So yeah, it, it grew. Yeah, it grew. It, he, he was successful at anything he touched. So, and and he had a consulting business, and it just it, anything he did. He, so so, living in that shadow was kind of like ah, what hi, 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 what am I ever going to amount to? <laughs> And all my right. brothers, all four, all three of my brothers went to college on full ride athletic scholarships. And I was, wow. the, one, I was the one who had to pay for it <laughs> for college. <laughs> so, uh, so I think it was the, the gangly kids, kids are, are cruel to each other. Uh, you know, if you don't fit it, especially in the Midwest, I guess, or it, there was a, there was a very specific uh, slice, a thin slice of normal. And if, and if you were outside of that thin slice of normal, you were made fun of. It was just part of the deal. Uh, it was here too. I'm here to attest to you. It was yeah. in California. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. So kids are cruel. I think we can we can all agree on that. Uh, uh, but <clears throat> so so to to combat uh, that, I developed a sense of humor, and I thought if people are going to be laughing at me because I have a long skinny neck and, and they're going to call me ostrich when I'm not looking or to my face, um, how about if I do something funny before they get to that, so that I know why they're laughing now? I can control why they're laughing. So that's where my, that's where a goofy sense of humor came from, and that was inspired by. You asked what I was watching: Jerry Lewis movies, uh, Dick Van Dyke, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, uh, uh, you know, Gilligan's Island, Gomer Pyle, 
Barney Fife on on the on the Mayberry RFD show, please. That was my he was my Don Knotts was my hero. So if I <laughs> and they inspired me. If if those goofy guys can have uh, uh, be successful and have a reason to live, then so can I. And so I think that's why why and they were on my TV screen. So I thought, oh well, maybe I need to be on that same TV screen one day. Maybe that's where I belong. That's where that's where it all started. And were your parents supportive of your uh, endeavors in the show business uh, field? Well, as any good Midwestern parent should do, they tried to dissuade me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but um, you know, because it's like in, in Indiana, it's like there aren't a whole lot of none of your neighbors are making a full time living from the showbiz. So uh, so that didn't, make, that didn't make sense. But, but you know, yeah, express yourself artistically. Sure. We'll support. We'll come. We'll show up to your high school plays when you're in them. Yes. Uh, if you if you want to dance in a musical, we'll come cheer you on. But uh, you're going to go to college and you're going to major in something that you can get a job in. How about that? <laughs> so, so that's uh, yeah, they're supportive as much as they could be. Yeah. What was that major? I majored in. Well, I, I wanted to stay in some kind of a media driven major, so I majored in radio and TV broadcasting. Uh, oh, I did that. Did you? And I had a minor in theater just to you know keep my toe dabbled in there. Hmm. Good. So, what was the first opportunity that allowed you to leave Indiana and get work in film or television? Oh, or well, stage. It, right. It, um, my, uh, the reason the, the 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 job opportunity that that helped. I was married by now. I married my college sweetheart, uh, Lori, and so Lori and I had been married for eleven months when I. Uh, interviewed for and got a job in California as a bank management trainee at First Security Pacific Bank, which is long gone now. But uh, wow. that was our moving job. That's That was the job I came, we could move to California for. But I wanted to get that bank job in Los Angeles, California, because I knew this is where the showbiz lived. And I thought if I can just get us out there, relocate us out there and have a, have a job to get to, that's the safer way to move for me. Uh, and then that job lasted. Oh, oh, Mick. Oh, Mick. Banker? No. I, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't see you doing it. Yeah. Square peg round hole. I, I uh, wearing a tie every day and carrying a briefcase and, and, and trying to learn how to how to supervise that line of tellers and be responsible for all the cash in the vault. <laughs> really bad fit. Bad fit. Wow. So they fired me. <laughs> After, oh, well. Yeah. I lasted eight months, and uh, oh, and 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 they when they fired me, I cried for an hour, and then after that, I was like, "Hallelujah, I'm free!" So ah, the chains have been released. Right, right. So I, I went on unemployment, uh, uh, and took it took my first uh, TV commercial acting class. And it was from that class. That class was taught by a commercial agent that was at the Wilhelmina Agency. Uh, ah, uh, which originally was a, a modeling agency, modeling agency in New York with a, bi a big name one. And yeah, their, their, West, their West Coast office had a huge TV commercial department in the top wow. 10 in the city. So here I fell into the hands of this man because of his acting class. And after my second class, he said, here's my card. Call me at the office. And that, so that was I owe Philip Carr uh, a lot for that, that little gesture because they mm -hmm. did take me on and I did start auditioning for commercials. And after six months of auditioning, I landed my first spot in June of 1986. Wow. And that was uh, a Southwest Airlines commercial where I played a dancing mummy. Where I, <laughs> and 
So I could, yeah. I see, I could, I could draw back to my first horror film I ever saw of Boris Karloff as the Mummy for my inspiration. Yeah, yeah nice, that's, circle. nice circle of life here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you did a lot of commercials. You did music videos as well. Tell me about yeah, that experience. I were did. you, you were you a dancer? Um, by training, or was it something you just felt good at and beautifully done in Night Angel? I want to repeat. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, was that something you had studied? But uh, and is that why you did so many commercials and and music videos and things? Um, no, I, I was. I'm not a trained dancer. I am a freestyle Dougie goes crazy dancer. That's what I. Yeah. Think. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> I. Um, yeah, I'm bandy legged and and uh, you know I, I the only the only organized dancing I ever did was in a folk dance troupe in college called the Bonavolks and we did folk dances from around the world and so I learned uh, that that's the only time I really was really ever choreographed and, and rehearsed on stage otherwise it's been it's freestyle Dougie yeah that's what we want to see yeah. freestyle well, tell me about, <laughs> tell me about the music video experience yeah. well I, you know I, I did a few uh, and. I, I love those shoots so much because they're, you know, the storyline was was visual. Well, there's a song playing, of course, so I didn't have to memorize any dialogue, which was great. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I, I, I did a couple of high profile ones. Um, the, probably the biggest uh, high profile one was for the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. The song was yeah. Soul, Soul to Squeeze. And right. uh, I was a contortionist in that. It, the whole setting of this was a black and white video that was uh it was following a traveling circus gang around uh, back in the Dust Bowl sort of 1930s. And our, our ring, our ringmaster uh, on the road with us, as you saw, setting up tents and getting into trailers and going on the road in this storyline was uh, uh, Far Chris Farley. He was the, he's the, the he was right. the one who passed away, right? Yes. Yeah. So it was Chris yep. Farley. Yeah. So uh, getting to meet him and, and, and you know the Red Hot Chili Peppers. All, all Anthony Kiedis was such a sweetheart. Flea was such a sweetheart. So they, they were just great guys. And I worked on that for three days and had a, a great time with that. Um, I did. Uh, oh, I was in a Marilyn Manson video. Now get this. Yeah, I was going to mention this one. Yes, my agent called to say, "Hey, uh, you've just have a straight up offer to be in a in a Marilyn Manson video." And I had not heard of Marilyn Manson, so I said, "Oh, she sounds like a lovely lady. Of course, I'll do it." <laughs> Not realizing that Marilyn Manson was a fella, and 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 an eccentric one at that. So, uh, so I was, yeah, right. I believe the song was um, "I Don't Like the Drugs, But the Drugs Like Me." It was that the title, right? Yeah. Okay, and uh, yeah. and and the 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 theme of this video was uh, the TV culture and how it was kind of set in the future where all of us consumers watching too much TV, our eyes have, have morphed and evolved into these huge eyes. That's because that's all we use is we sit still and we watch TV. So I wore a prosthetic makeup that Barry Coper applied to me. Of course uh, you did. <laughs> yes, yes, of course you did. With the huge eyes. So it was the upper half of the face with a big, a big forehead and, and, a, and a wig uh, in that uh, just to do a few vignettes and things. And I, I also did a, a Madonna video uh, and she, yeah, got, oh, this was hilarious. I, I was supposed to be part of a tall, thin couple. So they had a, a very, a very tall supermodel, thin girl, uh, a young lady that was sitting next to me on a bench with our feet in a pond. 
that Koi were swimming around in. And we were both wearing matching like smoking jacket robes, like all down to the floor while we're sitting in this water. And we held our hands artistically together just so and had to hold very still while a camera zoomed in on us. That's all we knew. I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting shot, whatever. The video comes out. Our heads have been replaced with hand mirrors. <laughs> and on the face of the hand mirror was Madonna, <laughs> her, her face singing. Yeah. So, so from the neck down, I'm in a Madonna video for one quick shot. <laughs> yeah, my music video experience was being a, a zombie and thriller. And then I directed for a couple weeks a Michael Jackson video that uh, fell apart during the scandal era and continued three years later and I was no longer a part of it. But man, that experience was phenomenal to, to have gone through. Mm -hmm. um, probably other than your work with Guillermo, the Star Trek character has, has been the most popular, maybe <laughs> what you're best known for when you go to conventions and the like, that's probably what the fans talk to, uh, mm -hmm. to you about the most is STD. Well, I'd, maybe I shouldn't say STD. <laughs> <laughs> But Star Trek Discovery and uh, and and your character there. Tell me a little bit about how that came about and what you feel you brought to it yourself. The personality right. of Doug Jones that infected this character. No, thanks. Well, I, uh, I Saru is a Kelpian, and the Kelpian species is brand new to the uh, to the Star Trek universe. Has never been seen or heard of in any of the other franchise TV shows or movies. So to help develop and build a species from the ground up was quite an honor for me, uh, has been and continues to be. Uh, so the Kelpians are these tall, skinny, very, very uh, elegant uh, creatures that would remind you of a gazelle in the wild. And um, uh, and I was first approached by, again, this was a referral from my creature effects makeup people that I love and, and adore, Glenn Hetrick, who uh, who did uh, supervise my makeup for um, Legion as the ice cream man uh, right. and and page who uh, we, 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 we all sat together and, and uh, when I was a guest judge on face off the, the, the makeup competition show. Well, the two, right. of them had, the two of them had formed a company called Alchemy Labs, and they were the ones uh, uh, commissioned to create the creatures for Star Trek Discovery. I got a call. And here's this this lead role uh, <laughs> who's and I then met with the uh, our, our then showrunner uh, Brian Fuller and and uh, Aaron and the Gretchen, brilliant, uh, brilliant Brian Fuller who has been oh, on the show. Yeah, Just his brilliant. work is, is phenomenal, and he really brought so much of his personality into the Star Wars, the Star Trek universe. Absolutely right, right. And so the first thing they told me about Saru is that he was going to be sort of, even though he's not Vulcan, Kelpian is very different, but he's going to be sort of the Spock of this series. Mm -hmm. and, I, and so with that, I'm like, oh, because being born in 1960, having seen the original series in 1966 and beyond uh, on network television with my family in my living room, Spock was the character I related to because he was the oddball. He was the one who looked a little different, who was tall and thin uh, and had his own, you know, uh, human versus Vulcan to overcome. Uh, I got him. And, and uh, so to, to be a character, I'm, I'm the odd looking one on the bridge of the Starship Discovery. Uh, right. It was just, okay, I'm in. I'm, I love this whole idea. Uh, 
and so then then again like like i said before developing the character we have the script to work with we have now notes with our showrunners and our writers and like where, what's the kelpian backstory what's our where do i come from i'm a i'm a prey species so therefore there was another species on my home planet that was the predator which we find out later as you watch the show who they are and why they did what they did uh why they suppressed us like they did um but but going into it, all I knew is, is I'm a prey species, so I'm a subordinate to someone else, uh, another kind of creature. So that's why the gazelle thing came into it. So, uh, you know, gazelles are, are, are prey in the wild. Uh, uh, you know, watch a, watch a lioness go after one and, and you, you got your story. So but but they're also crafty and they know how to how to outfox, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, distract and, and get away from. They know how to protect themselves as well. So and if you get behind one, they have a good kick. So there were a lot of things I, that I got from nature to help develop uh, Saru and, and Kelpians. Uh, the next thing. But I'll tell you, getting the makeup on again uh, was was the final button on that sweater. And, uh, and the, the look of Saru, well, this, the makeup went through two two stages. Originally, I had two winged crests that came up off my head, and I had 10 eyeballs in my face. It was a very oh. extreme design. Uh, we did one makeup test, and it was it was very heavy on my head, and I had to look, and I was looking through pinholes because these eyes were, were placed not where my eyes are. Mm-hmm. And that would that post-production CG a lot of work, a lot of money. So I think <laughs> the... and, and Neville called me after that makeup test, Neville Page, bless his heart. I'm so glad he did this to say, what were your true feelings about this? Cause we had network people there and, and I was, I was in a good mood and, you know, tried to keep this moving along. But when he called me afterwards and said, okay, privately quiet, you and me, tell me how you felt about that. I said, Neville, it's a it. If I'm on this show for years upon years, uh, this is going to get cumbersome. And, uh, and, and I said, and I also, if he has, if I have emotion to play with other characters one on one, ten eyeballs are not as easy to connect with, uh, <laughs> you know, emotionally. He oh, said, I, sure. and and Neville said, I completely and totally agree. I want more of you, I, the Doug Jones that I know and love. He said, I want more of that in this character. So let me come up. So he showed me the new design uh, days later of the Saru that you see and know now. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the, that's him. That's it. I love him. Thank you. So thank you so much. So the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the network was happy with it too. So, so that's why his, well, where, where the look. That's one of the great things. It's a makeup job, but it's still Doug Jones shining through that oh, you're not completely you. hidden by that. And, and that's an important thing for makeup effects people as well as actors and directors to keep in mind is if you want humanity in your character, you've got to let the actor shine through the latex. And that can mm-hmm. be very demanding and difficult, especially if it's an immobile kind of makeup. It can hide right. all the subtleties of, a, of an eyebrow or, or a forehead or, or a right. mouth, or whatever. Those expressions are important. Right, right. Depending on right, exactly depending on the character, and I've I've had all all fi- over my career of thirty four years, I've had uh, characters that have had that where none of my expression can make it through, or a lot of it can, and everything all the gray area in between. Um, so, you know, when when you when you when your facial expressions don't read outside, you do have to use the rest of yourself to compensate. That's where the hand gestures come in. That's where a tilt of the head comes in. That's where a shrug of the shoulders can come in. And all of that can then imply what the face is doing. 
so it's you just have to learn the balance of it. So Saru, thank heaven, is is more expressive than I than I imagined he could be, and I, I just love that. Also, the hoof boots, uh, my footwear. I have I have hoof boots, which again helps sell the gazelle element of this character. If not. Um, do uh, your spine a lot of good. <laughs> right, right, right. So, the, And I, I was terrified putting them on the first time because it's a high heel sort of shoe without a heel behind you. So you, you're balancing on the ball of your foot. Well, when I put those on for the first time, it, it I had to sort of alter my posture to balance, right? Pushing my hips a little bit forward, making my hands drape a little bit behind me instead of side by side. Uh, so I started walking around the, the, the costume fitting area and my hands naturally started swaying behind me. And that's where Saru's walk came from within minutes of putting my boots on the first time. People ask me all the time about that Saru's walk and where did, how did you develop that? And it was, it was thank heaven for the boots. It, it, because you know, every, every new character that I, that I am assigned, uh, I want him to have his own uh, life and his own look and his own ecosystem that I haven't played before. And now after 34 years, that's hard to do because I'm just one guy, right? <laughs> Uh, so those boots really did help me find a, a new, unique thing for Surya that I've never played before. Well, versatility is a real hallmark of your career, this 34 years of acting. Um, you've been able to play a lot without makeup, as well as every kind of makeup you can imagine. Tell me about the Doug Jones performances where you're not obscured by makeup that that have felt the most rooted in your personality that really feel... Yeah. Or whether they're well known or not, the the yeah. ones that you would like an audience to experience you. Oh well, thank you for this. It's very very sweet of you. Um, I uh, yeah, the, the 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 Doug Jones with my own face characters that I love and and the projects I've been in are lesser known, uh, more indie indie vibe type films. Um, I think my favorite human I've ever played is a character named Jerry from a movie called My Name Is Jerry, and you can find that on the YouTube for ah. free in, in its entirety. Uh, my name is Jerry. I played the title character of Jerry, who was a middle-aged white guy going through a midlife crisis, which I am and have done. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was written specifically for me at the time, and I had a, a great time playing him. Uh, and I got to film that back in my home state of Indiana and nice. uh, it, during the summertime, and I just, well, I was in heaven doing that. Well, uh, we'll I, talk more of them, but what was that midlife crisis that afflicted you? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I turned 40 in the year 2000. I, I'm about, to, I'm a month away from turning 60, by the way, Mick. Uh, so I'm <laughs> it's, uh, well, getting up there. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, eager so, to have you. Yeah. No, bless you. So, um, uh, but when I turned 40, you know, uh, when, when you're an actor and and you're in a youth-driven business, turning 40 is, you know, can feel like a death sentence. Um, and I had I had just been, uh, but but what was happening right around that time, I had just been offered a uh, I, two movies at the same time. Um, at the time, uh, Jodie Foster was trying to ramp up. She was directing a movie called Flora Plum, uh, directed by, by Jodie, uh, starring... Russell Crowe and Claire Danes, and it was a circus-themed movie. And uh, and I had then, after meeting with Jody, she wanted to cast me as the circus contortionist that befriended uh, uh, Russell Crowe's character, who was a trapeze artist with lots of hair on him on his back. <laughs> so yeah. we were 
there was that there was that and it was going to be a smaller but it was going to be like a more like a del toro a smaller budget artsy uh film but with with great names and great writing and with jody directing it's like it sound dreamy same time i had uh, a dear friend of mine uh, uh a dear couple friend of mine um Bo Bo Flynn and actress Marley Shelton uh, yeah. were involved in a movie called Bubble Boy, and uh, and wanted me to play a contortionist in that as well. Uh, as Bubble Boy travels the country on this little mission to find the girl of his dreams, um, uh, he comes across different different characters along the way, and one was it was a a, a circus gang, and uh, so that I. So now, so I was battling like, oh my gosh, what do I, do you go with the art movie with the huge names or do you go with the friends that you know and trust and, and it's going to be a more of a summer like box office movie? What? So, oh, I, oh, it was, it was a, a tragic decision to have to make, but thank goodness Bo and Marley, the friends of mine understood because uh, she as an actress had also done, made this decision before when right. she, you know, and, and they understood that I had to go with the art yeah, for this one time, but please forgive me, <laughs> and we'll we'll, love, we'll keep loving each other. Uh, they were very understanding. Russell Crowe had a shoulder injury two weeks later, and the production was shut down and did not go forward. It was oh. shut down indefinitely. So then, coming back to Bubble Boy, hey, I'm free now. Already been cast. So then, oh. after having after having two movies, uh, 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 you know, vying for my, my involvement. And then neither of them now is this possibility. And I just turned 40. I was like, okay, that's the end. I, this will never happen again for me. Blah, blah, blah. Little did I know, Mick, that, uh, you know, my biggest years were still way ahead in my fifties. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, it, uh, so I think what, but here's what I learned about my midlife crisis. And that is uh, many of us have a midlife crisis when we, realize that our our expectations of our future when we are in our 20s i'm going to have a mansion in malibu i'm going to have servants i'm going to have a rolls royce those expect those dreams and expectations when you get to 40 and you realize you don't have them that's when a crisis can happen right hopefully hopefully the the positive outcome of that crisis is you know what i don't need those things i have all of yeah, oh, and and now I don't even want them because that's uh, think of the upkeep and maintenance, right? <laughs> right, right. But but you realize what you do have. I have you know a fantastic family. I've got you know I've got the best friends. I've got you know I, I'm uh, my my faith in God. I mean all, all the things that matter to me. I have. Uh, so so then then I could I could go on with the rest of my life being very satisfied. So I, I, midlife crises crises are. I think that's a necessary, uh, you know, coming of age, coming of middle age. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to continue evolve to evolve throughout your life, you need to confront the negative as well as the positive. It's going to happen. Right. You're going to deal with it, and and you make a choice whether you're going to be happy and fulfilled or not. Um, right. And so let's let's talk about a couple more of the makeup free, um, <laughs> best Doug Jones things before we wrap it up. And then I want to talk about things that might be coming up for you. Yeah. Um, what, uh, also, uh, I, uh, my sitcom dreams came true. I know I've, I've guest starred on a few uh, sitcoms over the years, but, but my, I think my favorite I ever did was a, a Dan Fogelman production uh, called the neighbors on ABC. It, right. The show, the show ran for two seasons uh, and I, I was cast as one of the goofy neighbors. We were a bunch of aliens who had taken on human form. Yeah, hey. 
neighborhood and, and a, a human family moves into our subdivision, not knowing that they, that all of their neighbors were these aliens who had taken over the neighborhood uh, beforehand. So uh, it was just a culture clash, just utter hysteria. And I, I, I did six episodes of season one of that show and, uh, and laughed every day. I looked forward to going to work. Uh, it was, it, oh, it was so great. And I couldn't do season two because I had accepted a series regular role on falling skies at the time. So that's the only right. reason I, I couldn't. return. And then, uh, and then I just, uh, also, I'm a big Hallmark junkie. I know this is your audience is not going to understand this at all, but, <laughs> but I love the Hallmark channel. I love feel good, happy back to my childhood. I love feel good, happy endings, low stakes. I love all of it. So I got to do a movie for their their uh, their their uh, another channel of theirs, Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, where uh, it was called it was called the Ultimate Legacy. It was part three of a trilogy. The, there was the Ultimate Gift, the Ultimate Life, and the Ultimate Legacy. And I was in part three as a butler to my boss lady, played by Raquel Welsh. Oh my and, God! Yeah, so I got to wear a bow tie and a three piece suit and a watch chain and. I was in and out of hair and makeup in 15 minutes. It was no, it was dreamy, dreamy, Nick. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Well, I, one of my favorite things you've done is what we do in the shadows. That series is so great. Thank you. And it's Thank so you. great. To see. You did like half a dozen episodes in the first season. Are you in season two? Which, uh, as we're recording this, I think it uh, premiered last night. It did premiere last night. And I, uh, oh, well, you know, I just have, gosh, again, have so much fun on that. I originally, I was never supposed to make it past the the pilot. I did the pilot episode as the as Baron Afanas, right? Uh, and and then we had so much fun. I was a one day shoot for me because I, I was mm -hmm. in just this one this one notable scene. Well, uh, show creator uh, 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 um, was Jermaine or Jermaine. He uh, and well, Taika was our director as well for the pilot. Right. So I, I got to meet and work with both of them. But then, what a dream team they are! My gosh. Uh, but uh, Jermaine said, "You know, this has been such a fun time having you here. I, I, I want to bring you back later in the season if this show gets picked up." Well, it did, and he did. So I was in episode six, which was uh, uh, the Baron's Night Out. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, again, look forward to going to work. I, you know, again, a prosthetic makeup job that I couldn't have loved more. Um, and uh, we laughed a lot. A lot of they they relied on they wanted you to improv and go off script anytime you wanted to, and uh, and Jermaine loved everything I did, and so it was just uh, just a very quite quite dreamy. Um, uh, yes. And uh, <laughs> are you in season two? No, that was the question. Right uh, at the end when they. Uh, so I, I, you know, for the spoiler alert, uh, uh, for those who haven't seen the show, season one yet, um, after my Baron's night out, after my big night out on the town, uh, the sun comes up and I, I fry. Ah. <laughs> so, accident. Uh, then when they're putting my carcass away in a, in a later episode, um, my charred carcass, uh, right before the coffin closes after their ceremonial goodbye to me, my eyes start glowing red and then you see it just for a split second. So Jermaine told me he did that on purpose as well because uh, the, bear, the Baron was a bit of a hit and, and they just wanted to leave the window open. Could they bring me back one day? Let's just leave the possibility there. So, okay. uh, but so season two, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't believe we did, we're able to pull it off. Uh, and prob partly because 
uh, I was in production with Star Trek Discovery season three at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, well, you are everywhere, and uh, and is there something we should be looking forward to that we may not have heard about yet? Right. Well, uh, again, season three of Star Trek Discovery is now finished and in the can. We got that done just before this quarantine started. So thank heaven we, we got our filming done. Post-production's in, yeah, nick of time. Uh, Post-production's in process uh, and, you know, being worked on remotely from homes as it can be. With We have a lot of visual effects, musical scoring and voice looping ADR to do. So that's where they're, they're trying to navigate how to get that done. Uh, so that's still coming to, to CBS All Access sometime later this year, and uh, and also uh, the feature film that I have that I have finished and in the can that has not come out yet is uh, a remake of Nosferatu. Yes, I've been hearing about this. Yeah, I'm very excited about that. Uh, that was a dream role for me. Uh, as that was my bucket list character of all the prosthetic makeups and and transformations. What's the one I, I that I hadn't done yet that I would love to do? And the answer was always uh, Nosferatu. I wanted to play Count Orlock more than anything because he was the vampire that uh, that that romanced me the most. Uh, watching him as a young person because he was so hideous, and I felt mm -hmm. hideous, and I understood that. But he didn't have any clue how hideous he was. He was a he was a, a, a regal count in his day, and he yeah. has no no he's faded into this 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 monster of a thing. Uh, so I, I related to that part of him, and he just wants to survive like any monster does. So right. I got to uh, so we got to do that. Uh, David Lee Fisher, the director, he wrote uh, a screenplay. So it is a talkie with sound, uh, and but filmed in the old school style of the original silent film. To the wow. point where we were filmed in front of a green screen. There's a green screen element to every frame of this movie, of this remake. And what, what is green in the screen uh, has been filled in with uh, footage from the original film. So he created backdrops off the original movie. He did the same process uh, in uh, an, an, an earlier film that we did together, David Lee Fisher and I. Uh, in uh, We did The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He did a remake oh. of that. Yeah. Wow. Also, also he uh, took the silent film and made it into a talkie with sound. Uh, that was done in black and white, and that is also on the YouTube in its entirety for free. If you yeah. look up Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 2005, you'll find it. Awesome. Doug, thank you so much for joining me, and, let, and so great to catch up with you and, and look forward to doing it again soon. And me to you. Thank you for having me so much, Mick. I, I, I have lots of history. You and I have another another bit of history. Uh, of course, you create, you know, as a creator of the Masters of Horror, when that was kind of redesigned oh, yes. for network television as Fear Itself, I got to play in the Skin and Bones episode, which uh, that was another human role for me that I did enjoy, but but I kind of like morphed. I got monster-ish as, as, as this episode progressed. I was a Wendigo. Yeah. For uh, yeah, Larry Fessenden. Larry Fessenden, dear, dear director and, and writer friend and actor friend, and he's just isn't he delicious? Yeah, wonderful guy. Well, Doug, thank you so much, and can't wait to do it again. And once all of the smoke clears, to see you in person. Yes, it's a deal. Let's have, let's have a we'll hug it out when we can again. Okay. Great. Thanks, Doug. Take care. Thank you, Mick. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.